This is a Dece World production in association with Pants Pending Studios. Malam Keen, everyone. This is Dece, host of The Social Hour. Oh, that? That's just me playing the piano. I'm pretty good, aren't I? You know what else I'm good at? Making people laugh and talking to people, but more importantly, making you think sometimes. So tune into The Social Hour every Tuesday and Thursday at DeeceComedy.com and hear me talk to people like Libertarian presidential candidate Joe Jorgensen, comedian Steve Hofstetter, creator of The Savage Dragon and co-founder of Image Comics, Eric Larson, and the guy who owns the weed shop on the corner by my house. <laughs> We've got range, just like my abilities on this piano. Listen to me mix it up here. We'll just let that play. I'll see you this week on The Social Hour. Malam Keen, everyone. Welcome to the show. This is the Dollar Bin Podcast. I am Deese. This is your favorite comic book review show where we review uh, semi-obscure or traditionally well-known as bad trade paperbacks. And then I pick a comic book I got from the Dollar Bin and we talk about that too. Today on the show, we are talking about Uncanny Inhumans Volume 1 Time Crush by Charles Soule and art by Steve McNiven. Originally published in 2015, Uncanny Inhumans, otherwise known as the New X-Men, Time Crush covers number 0 through 4 of the series. Charles Soule is probably best known for his run on Daredevil and She-Hulk, uh, which is great, and we may actually review one day. I've just been going back and reading his whole run on that. Um, I guess I just did the Reader's Digest version of that review. I liked it a lot. He's a great storyteller uh, that knows how to create and write characters differently and actually get into them. And I mean differently when he approaches each character. Uh, some writers tend to have a writing style and then just apply it to every one they write. Soul actually graduated from Columbia Law, so this guy is really smart. Uh, he's not smart enough to actually become a lawyer instead of write comics for a living, but... Help me, I'm poor. Now, going into this book, I didn't know a lot about the Inhumans because they suck really bad. The Inhumans are so terrible that Marvel knew they couldn't even make a movie out of them. So they shit-canned the whole idea. How do you get beat out by the Eternals? How are the Duck has gotten a movie and the Inhumans got canned? Yikes. <laughs> But hey, the Inhumans did get downgraded to a weekly TV series on ABC, and it lasted just one season because, you know that old showbiz saying, always leave them wanting more of any other show because that show was terrible. And so were the comics. They're mostly boring and just kind of backup characters to the Fantastic Four. I will say that Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee had a pretty good run for the Marvel Knights series. I haven't read it recently. I'd like to go back and look at it, especially now after reading this book. 
And since I've been reviewing some Marvel Knight stuff with the Black Panther a couple issues ago on this show, and I'm a slut for Jay Lee. I love his art. Um, so we'll talk about that series soon, and uh, maybe might be the only other time the Inhumans were palatable. But we're talking about a book that's full of a guy who can't talk, a woman whose weapon is her hair, a fish guy, and a centaur. Awesome. How about a woman who can't talk? Am I right? Uh, it looks like Twitter just canceled me for that statement. But hey, this time the Inhumans are different. This time they're uncanny. Because the X-Men, they drop the uncanny. They're amazing. They're astonishing. They're extreme. They're extraordinary. They're all new. But I'll tell you one thing the X-Men aren't. It's uncanny. And now that the Inhumans are uncanny, they also come with actual X-Men. That's right, everyone. This version of the Inhumans comes to us at a time when Marvel was torpedoing the X-Men series so bad so they could get the rights back for the movies from Fox. And it worked. Marvel held the world hostage with the threat of an Inhumans movie, and Fox saved us all by sacrificing a franchise. The Lord works in mysterious ways. But I gotta say, despite the fact that I didn't know much about the Inhumans, and didn't care about them at all, really, this book was actually really good. I was shockingly surprised. That is shocking. I am shocked by this information. Black Bolt is definitely the lead of the series, obviously is kind of the patriarch of the Inhumans, or formerly as we see in this book. But Black Bolt is definitely the best part. Um, it's really nice the way you can actually feel his grief and emotion without him even speaking because his words, even whispers, explode things. Kind of like my girlfriend. And I went into this book pretty blind. I didn't know much about this time frame in Marvel. I wasn't reading anything from Marvel for a few years. Uh, 2015 was included in that. And again, I didn't know much about the Inhumans except that I hated them for no reason. Blind hatred. Like the way Raiders fans feel about 49ers fans. I don't know anything about them, but I know I don't like them. But despite not knowing anything about this time or the characters really... It was very easy to follow and pick up what was going on in this book. Uh, Kang the Conqueror is the main villain, and time travel is kind of the crux of these six issues. And those are usually two big strikes against a book. <laughs> but again, it was really well done. The story kind of revolves around them trying to save Black Bolt and Medusa's son from a deal Black Bolt made with Kang, which was supposed to save his son. I was a little unclear on saving him from what? But it's obvious Black Bolt felt he needed to do this to save his son, and now he wants to go rescue his son from Kang, who has him in his servitude. There's a myriad of twists in the idea that Black Bolt has willingly made this deal and is now trying to correct this. It's kind of fun. He's like this vigilante going out to save his son and trying to get his old kingdom of Medusa and the other Inhumans to follow him again when he's been dethroned. But also, as I mentioned, there's X-Men involved. The Beast is there. He's part of the series, as well as Human Torch, otherwise known as the best part of the Fantastic Four. So you get the Inhumans, but you also get kind of an actual team uh, because you have the mix of the X-Men and the Beast and then Human Torch, as well as the Inhumans, and this kind of new mission that isn't just them hanging out in a tillin'. 
I don't have a lot to say about the art because what do you say? Uh, Steve McNiven's art is always sharp. It looks amazing on this. It's so crisp. And I think he might really be the quintessential Inhumans artist. For some reason, to me, the Inhumans need to be drawn more realistically. I think that might be why I was so drawn to the late 90s Marvel Knights series with Paul Jenkins and Jay Lee. Because Jay Lee has such a dark, distinct style. And I think it really drove that Inhumans book, like Steve McNiven's art does here. I think a lot of other artists would really detract from this and make them less human, less real. These feel like actual people, actual characters. Now, that's partly due to Charles Soule's writing. But also, again, Steve McNiven's art is perfect for this book. He does an amazing job. The inking is great. The coloring is great. Uh, they use some really vibrant tones um, in some aspects of the book and really dulled down tones in other timelines that are more bleak. So they actually play with the coloring a little bit, it looks like, to be specific to times, which really makes it pop a lot. Overall, easy entry into a series and a fun read whether you like the characters know them love their lore or, or have never read an inhumans book at all you can definitely enjoy this book at the end of the day i'm giving this an eight dollar rating i really liked it now this did encourage me to go finish the rest of the uncanny inhuman series uh the sad part is the series has four volumes total in trade paperback uh, for a total of 20 issues the next volume falls off considerably in quality it's still good um and has art by carlos pacheco who is one of my favorite artists in comics of all time I don't think he can do a bad job ever, and it's always appealing just to see his art. And then Volume 3 is really just four issues of four Civil War II tie-ins, the crossover nobody asked for. And then the last volume, Volume 4, is all Inhumans vs. X-Men. So really half of this series was just editorial mandate, which sucks because it started out really strong, and I was actually pretty excited to read four volumes of it. But then the Inhumans went back to being sh the shitty team nobody knows about. Inhumans, more like in the background because nobody cares but again definitely read volume one maybe read volume two after that skip it volume one though again is getting an eight dollar rating out of ten bucks on this one eight out of ten it's a good read and now for our dollar bin pick of the week this week from event comics we have 1994's ash number one now for those of you who weren't around in the 90s there was a time when ash number one was a big ticket item. I found this thing literally in a dollar bin at a thrift store. And it's in perfect condition too. I wish I could time travel because I could sell this thing for $22. But that's a pretty good markup. Now again, this was 1994. So this was a time when more comic book artists had created own titles than senators had sexual assault allegations. This book was co-created by Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti, and was hot as wildfire at the time. I mean, it was smoking. A real barn burner. Okay, I think three fire puns is enough. But really, most comic book readers probably don't even think about it or remember Ash right now. But this book was wildly popular for its time. And for as wildly popular as it was, it doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. The TV show Small Wonder has a Wikipedia page. Let that sink in. If Shakespeare were alive, he'd turn over in his grave. Now, the publishing company that they had, Event Comics, has a Wikipedia page, but most of it is just about the Marvel Knights line or how Joe and Jimmy formed that. 
So really, you have a couple paragraphs about Event Comics and how it started, and then the rest of it's just a subreddit for Marvel Knights. All in all, Event Comics produced 17 issues of Ash in four different iterations, little titles, and miniseries. Uh, there was a time that a monthly series was announced, and James Robinson was attached to write the book, uh, which I think could have been really awesome. That really may have changed the trajectory of Joe and Jimmy's career, and maybe they wouldn't have been so inclined to take the Marvel Knights gig. But I think once they offered that, they realized that uh, printing their own book and not having a huge distribution deal was just not going to make the money that they were going to be able to do at Marvel. Funny thing is, at the time, they were so far behind. This book was constantly late. Uh, and Jimmy Palmiotti was quoted as saying that when they, when they announced this book, that within a year, they were going to be on issue number 12. And in 10 years, they're going to be on issue number 120. But what actually happened is that another issue of Ash was never even produced. Sadly, that was the end of it. Joe and Jimmy went on to create Marvel Knights at Marvel Comics, and we all know how that went. Over the years, Ash probably was in more books with other people or in crossovers than issues of his own series. He teamed up with Cyberforce from Image and even Azrael of DC Comics, which is the most 90s crossover ever. The only thing more 90s than Ash and Azrael teaming up would be if Rob Liefeld did a comic book adaption of the show Friends with a soundtrack by Vanilla Ice. Extreme Friends! The art on the book is really great, though. Um, the biggest tragedy of Joe Quesada becoming Marvel's editor-in-chief, uh, besides the Sentry ruining Spider-Man's marriage, destroying the X-Men, shoving the Avengers down our throats... <laughs> Batrock the Leaper, why is he still a character? Is that Joe doesn't draw comics anymore? Yeah, I'll do the occasional cover and things for Marvel, but he was very talented. Yes, it's a very 90s style, big splash pages, convoluted panels for no reason, but he's very talented. Um, art today is much more minimalistic in comic books and raw, but I think if he was paired with a heavy inker, or a very light inker. If he went to the type of art that like Salvador LaRocca does, where he's doing thin pencils, I think he might be considered one of the greats. But he just kind of stopped doing it. The story of issue number one of Ash is really pretty bumpy. And this was really what we saw a ton of during this time, was art pushing comic books forward. After Image started, just a flood of artists wanted to make their own series. It opened up the gateways, and they were all able to, and none of them succeeded. Because they couldn't write for shit, and it showed. I've said it before, but I think Eric Larson is the only example of an artist that successfully transitioned into being a writer. And Savage Dragon has never been a sales dynamo, but Eric found his lane and loves the freedom of being able to do his own book. He'll do other things occasionally, contract work with DC, Marvel, etc., but he's so good at just knowing what he wants to do and enjoying it. Now, this book opens with Ash, who is a firefighter, and he goes out on a call and is basically burned to the point where he makes Mason Verger from the Red Dragon looks like he's people's sexiest man of the year. Seemed like a good idea at the time. And then the next day, Ash is perfectly fine. 
back to normal and nobody questions it. Doesn't even bat an eye. Sure, yeah. Eighth degree burns down to your bones. Skin the next day, thumbs up all your hair. Nothing to see here. Don't worry, I'm just a guy who looked like a McDonald's burger that's been on the grill all day, and now I look perfectly fine. Then Ash goes home and talks to his cats for a while. He falls asleep. He kind of wakes up. Stuff happens with flames. Then he falls asleep again and then wakes up and he rides a motorcycle because 90s. Uh, little is explained, and I realize there has to be some intrigue for future issues. But this issue is really one giant plot hole and not really much to care about besides kind of cool art. And it doesn't really tell us much about the main character, Ashley Quinn, because he's on fire or asleep or talking to his cats. Doesn't explain his powers. Doesn't explain how he gets them. He just kind of wakes up, has them, and then jumps on a motorcycle. I understand you want people to stay around for future issues, but you have to give us something. Why do I care about this character? Why is half this book just him passing out and waking up and kind of having flame powers? Really? Again, the art on Ash is very amazing, but the story is very hollow. So as with most books from the 90s, Ash number one is truly a dollar bin comic. <laughs> All right, guys, that's all for the Dollar Bin Podcast this week. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to smash that subscribe button, rate, follow, leave a comment. Uh, feel free to message me, too, if you have any particular books you want me to read, review, or talk about. I'd be happy to. Follow me on Instagram at Deese.Comedy. Follow us at DeeseComedy.com, where you can get this podcast as well as all the other podcasts I do. I do a myriad of shows. Also, the Dollar Bin Podcast on Facebook. Go follow us there. And follow us on Spotify. You can listen and just hear the audio version. But that YouTube, you get them bonus features. All right, guys. For the Dollar Bin Podcast, I've been Deese Casillas. Peace. Peace.